I met Father Kosick about, uh, well, yeah, about quite a year ago. Uh, first time in London, or not in London, but in Oxford, at a liturgical conference there. Um, Father Kosick has written about reform of the reform of liturgical debate and um, has, with many other writings, uh, entered into the heart of the debate, at least in the United States, if not throughout the world, uh, regarding the upcoming Pope uh, from our perspective, reform of Pope Benedict XVI. Um, we've spoken here in regarding the Pope's work in the past, and uh, Father Kosick today hopefully will give us a little more insight into um, maybe what we should have expected over the last 40 years and didn't see, and hopefully what we will expect to see in the future. Um, we're on the edge, we live in a very exciting time, we're on the edge of um, that the church is going to go, it's got to go one way or the other regarding the liturgy, and, um, and hopefully we see a restoration of the great tradition which has stood for 2,000 years in the church. And so it's our duty as, uh, as Catholics to be informed about that, that when the Pope does guide us in that area, that we receive it with uh, open hearts and with an intellect prepared for his teaching, that we can go out and explain that because the day will come when many Catholics are confused, as they were confused in the past. And so it will fall upon our shoulders to go out and to explain the faith in that regard to them. So uh, it's a great honor for us to have a here today. Thank you. I meant to write down the title of the book. It's um, The Reform of the Reform. A liturgical debate. Tridentine Mass, and the other is a reformist, no liberal, to be sure, but who says that the the, the agenda ought to be to, uh, to try to improve uh, our celebration uh, and the and the rights of the reform liturgy. But we'll start uh, where any genuine reform ought to start with prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the heart of thy faithful, and fill him with the fire of love. Send forth thy spirit, O Lord, and shall be made, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Saint John the Beloved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Autobiography. I was ordained 10 years ago, June of 1997, for the Diocese of Fall River in southeastern Massachusetts. Now, most people have never heard of the sea city of Fall River, but I have no doubt you've heard of Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket 
Yeah, it's a horrible little part of the globe. <laughs> uh, if I don't have a Massachusetts accent, it's because I'm a native of the state of New York. Okay. A reform or reform? Oh, I'm happy to entertain questions after my presentation. Um, I'll take a few questions, but I have to get back to Christendom College, uh, which is why I put my email address on the board if anyone uh, has a question and I can entertain that question now. By all means, uh, email me, please. Since the mid-1990s, there has been much talk of a reform of the liturgical reform. Those who speak of a reform of the reform, a new reform, however you want to put it, uh, do so on the assumption that the call of the Second Vatican Council for a moderate reform of the church's liturgy, the liturgy of the Roman Rite, was in some way thwarted or even hijacked, and that what was eventually promulgated by Pope Paul VI was anything but a fruitful, uh, rather a faithful application of Vatican II's constitution on the sacred liturgy, Sacrum Sanctum Concilium. What happened, critics say, was more in the nature of a revolution than a reform or a renewal of the liturgy, as can easily be demonstrated when we compare the pre- and post-Vatican II rites of the Roman Mass. Let's consider exactly what it was that the Second Vatican Council called for with regard to the sacred liturgy. Well, the fathers of the Second Vatican Council, when they called for a renewal of the liturgy, in Article 50 of the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilio, they said that the order of the Mass, the ordo misse, the order of the Mass, the, the standard, the, the core, the unchangeable parts of the Mass, uh, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei, the, the general structure as opposed to the properness of the Mass, the, the prayers and the antiphons that vary from day to day or week to week. But the order of the Mass, the essential core of the Mass, was to be revised so that, quote, the intrinsic nature and purpose of its several parts, as well as the connection between them, may be more clearly manifested, and so that the faithful may be led to a devout and active participation in the liturgical action. Now that's a key paragraph in the liturgy constitution, so I'll repeat it once, uh, I'll repeat it. The order of the Mass was to be revised so that the, the intrinsic nature and the purpose of its various parts and the connection between them, their interrelatedness, may be more clearly shown. And so that the faithful may be led to a more active and, and devout participation in the rites of the Mass. <clears throat> now, how was this to be brought about? This was to be achieved primarily through a simplification of the Mass. On the one hand, the Council said, by eliminating those parts of the Mass which, with the passage of time, came to be duplicated or were added with little advantage. And on the other hand, by restoring other parts which suffered loss through the accidents of history. So on the one hand, a <coughs> trimming away, a trimming back of what they considered uh, unnecessary duplications, unnecessary repetitions, and on the other hand, by retrieving from the tradition certain elements that were lost over time and which might benefit the liturgy by restoring them. The, <coughs> the, but Article 50 does not specify what elements it has. In, you know, the fathers don't specify exactly what they're talking about in Article 50. The articles that follow paragraph 50 deal with questions related to the order of mass, although <clears throat> primarily they do not directly affect the structure of the mass. Article 51 
calls for the expansion of the scripture readings, quote, so that richer fare may be provided for the faithful at the table of God's word. So let's have more scripture in the mass. Uh, those of you who are um, uh, past a certain age uh, may recall that, uh, or those of you who are presently familiar with the, with the so-called Trinity Mass, um, there is not uh, as much use of sacred scripture, uh, primarily the Old Testament in the Old Rite, as there is in the New. In the, in the, in the Rite of Mass after Vatican II, we have two readings before the Gospel, the first usually taken from the Old Testament, or during Easter, the Acts of the Apostles. And then we have the second reading, which is usually one of the epistles of St. Paul. And then we have a gospel. But in the old rite, before the council, there was one reading, usually an epistle from the New Testament, uh, very seldom an Old Testament reading <coughs> and the gospel. So Article 51, uh, Expansion of the scripture readings, more a wider use of, of the Bible at Mass so that richer fare may be provided for the faithful at the table of God's word. That uh, expression, the table of God's word, actually uh, dates back to uh, origin in, in the third century, I believe. Article 52 underlines the importance of the homily, making the, hom the homily obligatory on Sundays and holy days of obligation whereas before, the homily was not uh, mandatory. And in many parishes, it was uh, given only at the principal Sunday Mass, but not, not at the other Masses, even on Sundays. Article 53 calls for the restoration of the general intercessions, more commonly called the prayer of the faithful. Article 54 says that the vernacular, mother tongue of the people, whether it be English, French, Spanish, Swahili, may be used, notice I said nay, in certain parts of the liturgy, so long as, get this, so long as the faithful may still, quote, be able to say or to sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which belong to them. So we have allowance for the vernacular, but in no way a prohibition of the Latin. Far from it. Latin is still to have pride of place while we open the window for the mother tongue of the people, for the vernacular languages in some parts of the Mass. Article 55 encourages that Holy Communion be distributed using hosts consecrated at the same Mass, something called for as early as Pope Benedict XIV, who died in 1578. The idea there is to keep the idea of the Eucharist as sacrament and the Eucharist as sacrifice together. Article 56 urges pastors to teach the faithful to take their part in the entire Mass. So it's an encouragement of, uh, of, a, of a more active participation with the, uh, the everyone involved in the sacred liturgy, the, the sacred ministers and the faithful alike, all have their parts to sing or say. And it encourages the faithful to sing or say the parts that belong to them, rather than uh, have the, the altar boys uh, uh, act as the representative, as it were, for the people by saying responses. Article 57 grants permission for concelebration in certain cases. Now, as far as revisions to the order of the Mass are concerned, that's it. That's as far as it goes. Recall Article 50. The purpose of the various parts of the Mass and their relationship to one another should be made clearer. Now the members of the Concilium, that's the commission established by Pope Paul VI to implement the reform, the liturgical reform called for by Vatican II, the members of the Concilium thought that the proper order of the parts of the Mass could be more clearly brought out, for example, by separating the, the physical locations where the two major parts of the Mass, what we now call the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, are carried out. The Liturgy of the Word having its proper place at the ambo or pulpit, 
the liturgy of the Eucharist at the altar, as was always done in a pontifical mass. Again, you may realize that in the in the old rite, in the pre-conciliar rite, uh, there was no sharp distinction. Uh, in the low mass, the readings were read by the priest at the altar, facing the altar. So one, the idea here was, well, how do we uh, more clearly uh, manifest the, uh, the, the distinct parts of the mass? Well, let's have the readings done from the lector, the, the, the ambo, uh, and the, the, the first part of the mass, what we now call the energy of the word, and then from the offertory on, the offering of the Eucharistic sacrifice naturally at the altar. So it's, it's making those two parts of the Mass, what was called the Mass of the Catechumens and the Mass of the Faithful, more distinct from each other. Uh, greater clarity could be shown also by proclaiming the reading space in the people. It was thought, too, that the mutual connection, thank you, that the mutual connection of the parts could be shown more clearly by simplifying the prayers at the foot of the altar, which overshadowed the entrance antiphon or the introit. The other key idea of Article 50 of the Liturgy Constitution was that the participation of the faithful should be facilitated. The members of the Concilium thought this could be done, for example, by restoring the offertory procession, at least on more solid days, or by having the canon recited aloud. Now let's turn to the actual implementation of Sacrosanctum Concilium. In September 1964, <clears throat> the Sacred Congregation of Rites issued the instruction inter ecumenici on the implementation of Sacrosanctum Concilium. In light of this document, in January 1965, a new edition of the Order of Mass was promulgated. It was ordered that this revised Order of Mass should be included in all new editions of the Roman Missal. Strictly speaking, there was no Missal of 1965 in the sense of a typical edition. There is the Order of Mass of 1965, which was inserted into the Trinity Missal or the Missal of 1962, uh, whenever it was reprinted. Now, how did the 1965 Order of the Mass differ from that found in the 1962 Missal, which is the last of the pre-Vatican II Missals? Well, for one thing, it considerably shortened the prayers at the foot of the altar by omitting Psalm 42. It instructs the priest not to recite privately the introits, the Kyrie, or the Gloria when they are sung. He is to uh, recite or sing them together with the people rather than privately as was the practice while the scola or the people sang or recited those, those prayers. In public masses, after kissing the altar and incensing it at the beginning, the priest may go to the sedilia, the bench off to the side, his seat, and he prays the opening prayer of the collect there, not at the altar. Again, the idea of keeping the two major parts of the mass, the first half and the second half, more distinct. The subdeacon or the lector is instructed to face the people when singing or reading the scripture lesson. A bow, rather than a genuflection, is made during the creed at the line at incarnatus est. Where that came from, don't ask me. <laughs> the prayer of the faithful precedes the offertory. So we have the restoration of the general intercessions in 1965. The canon is still said silently, so the concilium members didn't get their way when it came to that. But the doxology, the through him, with him, in him, the keripsu, is sung or said audibly so that the people may respond, Amen. The people join the celebrant in praying the Our Father. That was not done before. The priest uh, prayed the Pater Noster silently, and the people came in at the end, said, Libera Nosa Amal, deliver us from evil. The communion formula is shortened. 
It used to be Corpus Domini Nostri, Eus Christi, Custodia Dynamum, Tuam and Vitam Eternum. May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul unto life everlasting. Amen. As the priest would give the host, would administer Holy Communion to each communicant. Now the communion formula, 1965, is Corpus Christi. The last gospel is omitted. It was thought that it um, detracted from the gospel of the Mass. Certainly these forms, while we may not care for this one or that one, these reforms were not radical. And generally, they seem to correspond with the intentions of Vatican II, generally. And as I mentioned, some of the changes the Concilium recommended did not appear in the revised order of 1965. Uh, there is no provision for an offertory procession. That's something they asked for, they didn't get. The traditional offertory prayers remain untouched. And there are still many, though fewer, genuflections and signs of the cross. The next phase of the reform after Vatican II came in 1967, just two years later. This reform radically reduces the number of genuflections, signs of the cross, and kisses of the altar. It permits the recitation of the whole canon aloud. So we, we now have the audible canon as of 1967. And it no longer requires the celebrant to join his thumb and forefinger after consecrating the sacred host. It abolishes the private communion of the priest before the people's communion and just makes one communion, right? The priest receives and then the people in one act. It places the final blessing before the dismissal. In the Tridentine rite, you have a dismissal. Eat and Misa ask, Mass is ended, and then the priest would turn, face the altar, pray a private prayer called Placia Tidi, turn to the people and give the, the blessing. Well, the 1967 ordo swapped so that the dismissal is truly a dismissal, and there's nothing else. Go means go. The manacle is made optional. Uh, that's one of the vestments worn by the priest. And there were other ritual changes. That was 1967. In May 1968, the Sacred Congregation of Rites promulgated three new Eucharistic prayers, which the liturgy constitution of Vatican II did not envision. Nor was the Concilium authorized by the Constitution to create them. So we have the New Eucharistic Prayers in 1968, what we now call 2, 3, and 4. Then the bomb. The 1969 Order of Mass. A year later, in April 1969, Pope Paul VI issued yet another revised order of Mass, commonly called the Novus Ordo, or the New Order of Mass, which was ordered to go into effect the first Sunday of Advent of that year, 1969. Although the actual Roman Missal incorporating this new Ordo was not published until 1970. The 1969 Rite of Mass incorporated many of the features previously introduced. So it incorporated the reforms of 1965 and 1967, as well as the new Eucharistic prayers, which were introduced in 68. But it also included some elements that the Concilium wanted to do away with, the sign of the cross at the beginning of Mass. Can you believe the Concilium didn't even want Mass to begin with the sign of the cross? The, uh, Paul VI insisted on, made, on retaining the confidior. The Concilium wanted that gone from the 1969 uh, uh, rite. And the Orate Fratres. Uh, the Concilium recommended that the whole offertory just be a, a moment of silent prayer by the priests. It also introduces yet more new reforms. New offertory prayers with a response to be made by the people. Blessed be God forever. And still more simplification of the communion rite. The liturgical scholar Alvin Reed explains 
Quote, in terms of the implementation of Sacrosanctum Concilium, the 1969 Ordo is a mixed bag of some things called for and foreseen, and many things that were not. One key issue in evaluating this reform is the seemingly disproportionate quantity of changes when compared with the order of mass that Sacrosanctum Concilium intended to reform. In so many ways, he writes, both large and small, it is a substantially different entity and not an organic development of the traditional mass. Now, this is not meant to be a complete denunciation of the post-conciliar reform, or even of the 1970 Missal. The reforms authorized by Paul VI did indeed bring about some good fruits for the church, especially a stronger sense of, uh, of corporate worship, of participation by the faithful. Although I would add that we should not fall into the trap of measuring the people's participation in decibels. Right? But as far as people's responses and, uh, and activity in the mass, uh, external activity, there's more of it. And I think one of the first things that strikes <clears throat> someone who's unfamiliar with the Tridentine Mass uh, it, um, is the, you know, the silence, the canon being silent, the, uh, the uh, many fewer um, occasions where, uh, the, uh, where the, you know, the people, you know, no offertory procession, for example. And so it, at first it seems rather, rather foreign to those who are unfamiliar. The idea of participation in the old rite is is more focused on interior participation, prayer, contemplation, not so much measured by external activity. Driven by the recovered idea of the whole church as the body of Christ, the Concilium restored to the people their proper place in the liturgical books, saying or singing the responses and the prayers of various kinds that belong to them. Additionally, the reformers uh, introduced a rich fare of biblical readings, as Vatican II called for, clarified the structure of the various sacramental rites, simplified the classification of feasts, and recovered the ideal of baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist in that order as the threefold process of Christian initiation. All of these changes reflect the Council's fundamental liturgical commitments. So it wasn't a complete disaster or a, you know, a complete break with the past or, or revolution. Still, whatever one's theological perspective or personal tastes, there is no denying that many of the liturgical changes of recent decades have been more in the nature of a revolution than a reform, starting with the obvious. No sooner had the council ended than in churches the world over, altars were positioned in front of existing altars, that is, where the original altars were not demolished, so that the celebrants could face the people at Mass, despite the fact that the fathers of Vatican II said nothing nothing about mass facing the people. The Concilium allowed, but did not mandate mass facing the people. And in fact, the rubrics of the current Missal, the post-Vatican II Missal, the latest edition of which was published in 2002, the current Missal assumes that the celebrant and the people are facing the same direction, towards the altar. And so if you look at the missile used today for Mass, you'll see the rubrics, the red print, instructs the priest at various points when he says, the Lord be with you, to turn facing the people and say, well, why would it say that? Unless it presumed that the priest was facing the altar. Why tell him to turn and face the people? Additionally, the council opened the door for the use of vernacular languages. But I think, you know, that was a good thing. While decreeing that the faithful should be able to sing certain parts of the Mass in Latin. <clears throat> Yet by 1970, just a short time after the council ended, 
there were very few parishes offering mass in Latin, whether the Reformed Rite or the Pre-Vatican II Rite. Uh, it, you know, it, the situation is such that when a priest tries to reintroduce Latin to his parish, he's accused of being anti or pre-Vatican II, which is it's ludicrous. He's trying to uphold what Vatican II actually called for. Much has changed since then. The minor orders and the subdiaconate were abolished. Communion in the hand was restored after a millennium of destitute. Lay persons now routinely administer communion despite their status as extraordinary ministers. And females may now be altar servers. Many of these changes are the result of papal concessions to the liturgical progressives, often working in seminaries or on the liturgical commissions of various bishops' conferences, who actively undermine the official restriction or prohibition of these practices. These concessions, let it be said frankly, betrayed those who had obeyed the norms, shattering any confidence on their part that the church knows her own mind where liturgical discipline is concerned. Much of what has been done to the liturgy in the name of reform has undermined a good deal of Catholic doctrine concerning the real presence, the sacrificial nature of the Mass, the ministerial priesthood, and the role of the laity. No Catholic who appreciates the connection between lex credendi, what the church believes, and lex orandi, how the church worships, no Catholic who appreciates the bond between the law of belief and the law of prayer can be insensitive to the current state of affairs. Which is why I assume you're all here this morning. Certainly we can no longer maintain that the so-called Novus Ordo inaugurated the profound improvement in Christian commitment that was expected or promised. So what's the, uh, the scene today, the, if we survey the liturgical landscape? Well, many observers speak of three camps of contemporary liturgical thought and practice. You have the liberal progressive camp, the conservative camp, and the traditionalist camp. Those in the liberal progressive camp are determined to press ahead with novelties at any cost, moving farther and farther from any recognizable continuity with the Roman tradition, and often spinning off into practices well outside approved norms. For them, even the slender structure of the current right, with all its flexibility and options and minimal rubrics, even that is still thought to be an intolerant restraint on creativity and relevance. The very idea of a missal or liturgical law annoys this group. At the opposite extreme are the traditionalists. Restoration is their urgent and sweeping concern. Some would love to see a wholesale return to the old rite and the abolition of the new rite. Others would be perfectly happy if the old rite were widely available and the new rite allowed to go its own way. Even an impeccable celebration of the current rite in Latin, with the priest and the people facing the same direction, splendid vestments, Gregorian chant, incense, even that is a poor substitute for the real thing. And at the fringe are those who hold fast to the pre-Vatican II liturgy at the expense of their communion with the Pope. We have these schismatic traditionalist groups. Now occupying the broad and the very diverse middle ground is what I call the reform of the reform camp. The proponents of a reform of the reform do not seek a wholesale return to the Tridentine Mass because they do value 
elements of the Reformed liturgy. The correct approach, as they see it, is to correct the existing liturgy, to make it more consonant with Catholic teaching, more acceptable to informed and traditionally minded Catholics, and more expressive of the Church's faith, cleaned up of the abuses, a more faithful adherence to the rubrics, and more attention to what is called the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating the liturgy. More attention to, uh, the, the, to beauty and to a sense of the sacred and mystery. In my book, The Reform of the Reform, I suggest that uh, what the Reform of the Reform in a, in a nutshell means is a critical reassessment and most likely a suppression of some practices that now enjoy official approval. And for example, communion in the hand, female altar servers, the celebration of the whole mass facing the people, a critical reassessment of these practices, together with an enrichment of the current missile so that its continuity with the past can be more easily shown. As is well known, Pope Benedict himself has long taken an interest in the problem. He sees no difficulty in permitting the parallel use of both the old and the new rites. And while he's not in favor of uniformity, he does want to see reconciliation. With regard to the 1970 Missal, the first point is, and I quote then Cardinal Ratzinger, to reject the false creativity which is not a category of the liturgy and to effect a faithful ecclesial celebration. False creativity, you know, the gimmickry that so many of us have grown accustomed to. Well, what's the theme for this Sunday going to be and what can we do different? False creativity. Um, which is not a, in the category of the liturgy, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger says. And to bring about a faithful ecclesial celebration. Uh, a, a way of celebrating the Mass that reminds us that what we do here at St. John the Beloved in McLean or St. So-and-so down the street goes beyond these four walls. We are part of a larger community, indeed the communion of saints, which transcends these parish boundaries and the liturgy connects us with the Church Universal and the Church of all times. The improved translations now in progress are his second point. We have to have a more faithful translation of the Mass from the original Latin. That project, I'm happy to say, is near completion. And I'm told that the first use of the new English translation of the Roman Missal may happen at World Youth Day in Sydney, Australia next year. So that's where they want to showcase the the New English uh, translation. I don't know. We'll see. The third is to recover the effect of celebrating the liturgy all facing the same way. Rather, now, uh, the, the importance of, of, um, of restoring the practice of priests and people facing the same direction at Mass. Uh, contrary to what um, was often said after the Council, uh, the, the priest did not have his back to the people in the Tridentine Mass or in the, in the old days uh, in order to shut the people out of the liturgical action, but uh, rather to symbolize that the priest and people together are offering the holy sacrifice and uh, to symbolize that we, all of us, priests and people together, are on pilgrimage to the kingdom of heaven. We pray and hope that we're all going to the same place, the priest is the leader, and it's also the idea of facing east, liturgical east, uh, towards Christ, towards the rising sun, towards Jerusalem. There's a whole uh, uh, very rich uh, symbology involved in, in facing uh, the same direction. And the problem with turning the altars around, as Cardinal Ratzinger has said, is that now we become a community closed in upon ourselves. And the priest 
is tempted to be an entertainer now. Uh, is every gesture uh, observed? Uh, is, does he, does father look cranky today? Did he get a good night's sleep? Is he smiling enough? Uh, you know, and it, it, it destroys what the liturgy is about. It's not about, um, you know, I think, when, when the priest addresses the people, it is appropriate for him to turn and face the people. And when the priest is praying to God, when we are praying to God, it is important that that be expressed symbolically by facing the altar. The idea was not to face the tabernacle, because before the council, the priest and the people faced the same direction, even if the tabernacle was not on the altar. So the idea was not to face the tabernacle. It was to symbolize all of us facing east, symbolically facing east, whether the tabernacle was on the altar or not. And now Cardinal Ratzinger said that he didn't think it would be a good idea to uh, involve the church in another incredibly ex uh, uh, expressive round of, of reordering the sanctuaries. Um, so he suggests as a practical measure, as an interim step, that we put a large crucifix on every altar, not as, a, not as a, an obstruction, pardon me, but as a point of reference. Now, to say that the crucified one is, uh, is an obstruction uh, or, or some kind of uh, obstacle or, or hindrance or distraction is to misunderstand the liturgy. The crucified one is the point of reference. And so that can give the liturgy a new orientation. By placing a prominent crucifix on the altar in front of the priest, it can be made clear that the priests and people are facing the symbolic figure of the Lord, and thus, to some extent, recover the sense of everyone facing the same direction. Proposals for reforming the reform have been comparatively well received in Rome, and indeed, the 2002 Missal did incorporate some positive suggestions. The recovery of certain suppressed feasts, such as the Holy Name of Jesus, and certain votive masses. But the new edition still falls short of what had been anticipated and shows the power still wielded by those who are determined to resist all change to the status quo. As I say, the reform of the reform camp is hardly of one mind as regards specific proposals. Father Brian Harrison, in an essay that he contributed as an appendix in my book is uh, he rejects the idea of an increased enforcement of rubrics from Rome as being the solution, as well as uh, a return to the old mass. He rejects that as a satisfactory solution in favor of what he calls the Gamber proposal, named after the late Monsignor, German Monsignor Klaus Gamber. The idea is to carry out what the Council Fathers really wanted. And for this, he starts with the 1962 Missal, the rite of mass that was in use on the eve of Vatican II and during the Council. You start with that, and then he gives a detailed and thought-out program for revising it, modifying it, and presenting it for the edification of the faithful. He does this by taking the relevant paragraphs of Sacrosanctum Concilium and considering how they might have been applied to the existing Mass. The request for simplification, the recommendation that repetitions, useless repetitions, or at least what was thought to be useless repetitions, be eliminated, and a clear distinction being made between the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, he considers those suggestions satisfied, met by keeping the priest at the sedilia until the offertory, by shortening some of the prayers, uh, perhaps eliminating the last gospel and some of the signs of the cross. What Monsignor Gamber said, and what Father Brian Harrison endorses, is that the, the Order of Mass of 1965, which I described earlier, satisfies what Vatican II called for. There was no need to go beyond that. So we return to the situation in, in, in 1965. But one man's junk is another man's treasure, as they say. As the problem is that Vatican II gave very few specifics as to what was to be retained, what was to be dropped from the right of the Mass. 
And so when we're trying to determine what the Council Fathers really wanted, it comes down to your opinion against mine. And this is, this is the chief of the Achilles heel, the, the, the big problem of the reform of the reform movement. How do we know precisely what Vatican II wanted? Because it, it only gave few specifications with regard to the, the actual right of the mass. Um, Father Aidan Nichols, commenting specifically on Father Harrison's proposals, pleads for uh, keeping those repetitive elements which contribute to what the scholar Catherine Pickstock calls the stammering quality of traditional liturgy. There's something to be said for repeating things. It's the language of the heart. You know, we can reduce the liturgy to a cerebral exercise. Well, why say that when we've already said it? Well, how many times do you say, I love you? Just once? Domine non sum dignus, domine non sum dignus, domine non sum dignus. Some things are worth repeating. Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. Father Nichols, however, um, does advocate retaining in a revised missal, whatever shape it may take, most, if not all, of the wonderful prefaces that are found in the Novus Ordo Missal, the Missal of Paul VI. I must say that, that, um, that Paul VI, when he promulgated the, the Roman Missal of 1970, the so-called Novus Ordo, he did include some beautiful prefaces. He added to the prefaces of the Mass, uh, some of them coming from antiquity, which were not available during the, uh, the Tridentine reform. So, you know, it wasn't a complete disaster. Um, Father Nichols also deplores the use of the expression Sundays of Ordinary Time. In, in the New Dispensation, it, 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 there, it, there is no ordinary time. It's all redeemed. It's, 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 so he, rather than say ordinary time, let's go back to Sundays after Epiphany, Sundays after Pentecost. They're more theologically significant. Father John Parsons, in an appendix that he contributed to my book, agrees largely with Father Aidan Nichols. And he points out that the old missal was rather overloaded with some very obscure saints who could usefully be set aside. Uh, unfortunately, he cites as an example St. Catherine of Alexandria, of whom St. Robert Bellarmine remarked that he wished he could be certain she was more than a literary fiction, but who has reappeared in the Universal Calendar of the 2002 Missal. In the epilogue to my book, Father Peter Stravinskus offers a few more suggestions for a re-reformed Missal. Thank you. Eliminate the possibility for celebrants to inject their own comments. These are nearly always ancillary homilies, poorly thought out, rambling. So, you know, in a, in a reform of the reform, uh, remove uh, the permission for the priest to inject his own comments here and there at various parts of the Mass. It, always, always, it almost always turns out to be disastrous. Um, Permit no change introduced after 1970. He's referring to the, the abuses of communion in the hand and extraordinary ministers who are anything but extraordinary. Uh, now, to interject my own opinion, I'm, I'm, I'm separating myself here from Father Stravinskas. Um, these things are not in and of themselves evil. And the church does say that uh, there are situations, there are circumstances where uh, the use of extraordinary ministers is, is desirable and called for. But what he has in mind here is the abuse of that, um, of that privilege. You know, you've got 40 people at, day, at weekday mass and you've got to have four people giving up communion. Um, he challenges the arbitrary rearrangement of the calendar of saints, and he proposes the restoration of some octaves, Pentecost, for example, as well as permitting the traditional offertory prayers to reappear as options. So, you know, there's Father Brian Harrison, Father Aidan Nichols, Father Peter Stravinskas, Father John Parsons, yours truly. We all have our ideas of what a reform of the reform would look like if the new missile came out incorporating these uh, corrections to the, to the original reform. But there's, there's, there's no one, one answer. There, there are no conclusions, which is 
so encouraging, what's so encouraging about the discussion is that everyone seems to be having an amicable discussion on what to do next, but no one is dogmatic on what must be done. And that way, there can be progress. Different ideas are being floated, different suggestions are being made, but everyone appears to be happy to listen to what the others are saying. And so it must continue for some time. As one priest said, it usually takes about 70 years for a Babylonian captivity to run its course. So we will have uh, nearly 30 years to plan for a reform that will actually enhance and re-Catholicize the Roman liturgy, that will console the afflicted and reconcile the fractious. During this period of regrouping and dialogue, there will naturally have to be some interim measures because the faith of our young people is too precious to abandon for future generation. So what then can we do right now? And what prospect can there be of any success? For a start, it is within the capacity of any priest to make an effort to celebrate the present rite of mass as well as possible. For this purpose, a new version of the Missal, with its more precise rubrics, can be a useful tool, not least for convincing stubborn members of parish liturgy committees. <laughs> Most lay people are pleased when they see Mass celebrated in a solemn and dignified fashion by a priest who appears to actually want to be there and to pray. That can readily be demonstrated by observing the numbers at Mass and listening to people's comments in uh, churches which try to do things properly. But of course, lay people have no influence over the remaining unreformed priests who persist in ignoring the mind of the church and celebrating Mass as if it were their own private floor show or as if they are so bored with it that they want to get it over as soon as possible. However, the younger generation of priests is marked everywhere by a desire for a more authentic, more devotional liturgy. The problem of bad liturgy is to a certain extent being solved just by death and retirement. <laughs> Secondly, it is obvious that the will of our Holy Father and the mood of the Vatican is toward a more generous use of the old rite of mass, preferably in ordinary parishes, where those who choose to attend the pre-conciliar Latin mass, rather than the current mass in English or Latin, can still be part of the same parish, send their children to the same catechism class, join the same St. Vincent de Paul Society. That will do much to diffuse the lingering bitterness. It would also, I believe, help facilitate a reform of the reform. Pope Benedict, unlike his predecessor of blessed memory, is not only critical of liturgical abuses, as was John Paul, but also of certain aspects of the conciliar official reform itself. There's a key difference. In his preface to Monsignor Gamber's book, The Reform of the Roman Liturgy, then Cardinal Ratzinger wrote, in the place of liturgy as the fruit of development came fabricated liturgy. We abandoned the organic living process of growth and development over the centuries and replaced it as a manufacturing process with a fabrication, a banal, on-the-spot product. It would be hard to argue on the basis of this quote that Ratzinger was speaking only of liturgical abuses and not of the new rite itself. And then there is this from his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. As I see it, the problem with a large part of modern liturgiology is that it tends to recognize only antiquity as a source. By antiquity, he means the first few centuries of Christianity, and therefore normative, and to regard everything developed later in the Middle Ages and through the Council of Trent as decadent. And so one ends up with dubious reconstructions of the most ancient practice, fluctuating criteria, and never-ending suggestions for reform, which lead ultimately to the disintegration of the liturgy that has evolved in a living way. What the 
reformists at Vatican II, the members of the Concilium, tried to do by and large was to reconstruct their conception of the liturgy of the early church, thinking that it would be more simpler, uh, more simplified, uh, a more direct experience with our forefathers of the faith. Um, and, uh, for example, uh, turning the altars around. They, they uh, suggested it, the council did not mandate it, because they thought that that was uh, the, the ancient practice, and that it was only over the centuries when the liturgy came to be monopolized by the clergy that the priests turned around to shut out the people, and the priests became strictly, the liturgy became a strictly clerical affair, and who cares whether people even show up or not. Now, this was the, this was the stereotype, this was the caricature. And so let's go back to the, the, the practice of the early church. It was clearly an understanding that the Eucharist is a sacred banquet, so we must make our altars look like tables again if we're going to, to express the idea of the Eucharist being not only a sacrifice, but also a sacred banquet. And so let's turn the altar around. After, after all, the earliest Christians didn't uh, face the altar when they celebrated the Eucharist. But a lot of modern scholarship has exploded all that. The liturgy developed organically. It evolved in a living way, um, never having radical breaks with the past. Things came about for very good reasons. Both the pre-Vatican II and the modern liturgical books enshrined in different ways and with different emphases um, theological and liturgical principles that are necessary if we're going to have a truly Catholic understanding of worship. Whereas the emphasis in the old rite might be on the Mass as sacrifice, the emphasis in the new rite is on the Mass, the Eucharist as a sacred meal. Both are Catholic, both are uh, uh, required to have a properly Catholic understanding of what the Eucharist is. It is not only a sacrifice, and it is not only a meal. It is a sacrificial meal. And that's why I believe the coexistence of the old and the new rites can help foster a true renewal, particularly when conditions are favorable to cross-fertilization. In this age of casualness and improvisation and what liturgists call an excessive horizontalism in worship, when the emphasis is all on the community and you kind of lose sense of the sacred and the vertical dimensions, uh, the old rite, the classical rite, can remind us what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Most people who go to the Trinity Mass do not do that in protest against Vatican II, but because they find that the old rite conveys and fosters a pronounced sense of the sacred and the transcendent. Granted, the modern liturgy can be celebrated in a dignified and prayerful fashion, as I understand is the case here at St. John's, with artistic splendor and traditional ceremonial, but often that is not the case. Consequently, many Catholics flee to the old rite in order to escape the innovative banalities of too many Novus Ordo Masses. This is not to suggest that the pre-Vatican II liturgy was always perfectly celebrated. It was not the case. It was often badly celebrated. Or that it is the, uh, the, the apex of liturgical history. The liturgy is not a museum piece. It is the primary expression of the church's living tradition of believing and teaching and praying. For this reason, Cardinal Ratzinger had no qualms in suggesting, for example, that the prefaces of the new missal be added to the old missal, the missal of 1962. Some features of the new rite be incorporated into the celebration of the Trinity rite. By the same token, he has stated that a reform of the reform refers primarily to the new missile. If we're going to uh, tinker with liturgical books, uh, for the most part, we, we use what we have now. We don't go back to the 62 missile and, and tinker with that, other than maybe to add some of the prefaces or some new saints' feasts. You know, the saints canonized since 1970. We just can't pretend that they weren't canonized. We've got to add them to the old missile. Even if it is not the point of departure for a new liturgical movement, 
uh, the old missal, the old mass, does remain a lighthouse to guide the modern rite in a more traditional direction. But to sum up, as I said, there are no easy answers, no one program to reform the reform, the reform which explains why the whole second half of my book is a collection of appendices, uh, contributions by various liturgical scholars uh, showing us what a reform of the reform might actually turn out to look like. It's, it's highly speculative. It's, <clears throat> Recognizing the complexity of the situation is always in order, so long as it does not become the complexification that obscures what should be obvious. The simple truth, known with the certainty of faith, is that Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, remains with his bride, the church. And he communicates himself to us in word and sacrament, regardless of liturgical rite, as long as there are priests to speak and act in his holy name. I do not say this to endorse a minimalist approach to divine worship, whereby we concern ourselves only with the matter and the form of the sacraments and deem everything else, the surrounding ritual and the architectural environment and the music, as superfluous. No, to be sure, the liturgical rite in which we embed the sacraments, like the music and the architecture and so much else, says something about what we believe about the sacraments. So it makes no sense to surround the sacraments and everything we believe with garbage. What I am saying is that the liturgy, like the whole living tradition of Christian faith and practice, unfolds against the background of the horizon of eternity. No form of the Mass, neither the Missal of St. Pius V nor that of Blessed Paul VI, is perfectly adequate to the mystery of faith. Although we can and should work to improve the earthly liturgy, only in heaven is the liturgy perfect, even if our worship on earth joins us to the worship of the angels and saints in the church triumphant. Thank you.